I've been preaching since I was 16. One of the questions I've been asked a lot is, is it a sin to gamble? <clears throat> well, I got to tell you, there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not gamble. I mean, if it comes to gambling money, I'm not, not sure it's a good idea for at least three reasons in my life. First of all, the Bible tells us we're to be good stewards of God's money and considering the house wins. I'm not sure that's good stewardship, but I'll set that aside. The second reason why I'm not sure it's a good idea, I have friends who come back from Vegas and they bring pictures and say, Mark, it's the most awesome place. There's these magnificent buildings and fountains and, and you just can't believe how beautiful Vegas is. And I always want to say, that stuff wasn't built because people won money. Hello. That was built on lost money. And then the third thing is personal. I just get tired of standing at Quick Trip behind people buying lottery tickets. I mean, it, it takes quick trip to a place that's not so quick. And, and here's the thing. Just help me, <clears throat> help me with this. Do you ever see somebody win like, you know, like $20, $25? What do they do? Buy more tickets. I mean, it's like they get paper, they have money, but then they turn the money back and get more paper. I don't know. I, but this is not a series about gambling money. See, the thing about it is, every day of our lives, you and I are making bets. Bets with things that are a lot more important than money. For instance, on June 11, 1977, I bet my marital happiness on Mary Alice McDonald. Um, when I was 16 years old, I thought I was going to be an attorney and go into broadcast journalism, and God called me to preach. I bet my career on God's calling in my life. Ultimately, I bet my soul on the promises of God. These are bets that you make. I mean, you could be here today and you say, Mark, I don't believe in God. I just don't think there's anything to life after I think you live and you die and that's it. Well, that's your bet. You got a position. You got your, you got your bet on the table. It's either a good bet or a bad bet. What makes a good bet a good bet? Truth, value. So today, I'm, this, is, this is not a series about betting money necessarily. It's mostly about betting the things that really matter. Our series is called Kings and Queens, and although I'm going to get into today's talk, I want to just take a moment to talk to you about the series. And let's ask the question, why Kings and Queens? It is a little unusual. If you're, if you're a new springer, you're not surprised to see a stage with playing cards on it, but if you're, a, if you're from a traditional church, that could, could probably be a little funky. So why is it that we're doing this series called Kings and Queens. I want to give you seven reasons real, real fast. Number one, I believe with all my heart the Bible is the Word of God. If you have scripture, if you have a Bible in your hand, you have God's words to you. The Bible says they are inspired. In the Greek, theonuma, which means God breathed. So if you have a Bible, you have God's Word. Hey, when you look at how the Bible is distributed, you get a sense of what are the most important messages. So we're talking about kings and queens. Now, start with this. There are four books in the Bible that are called the books of the kings. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. But that's just for starters, because when you read the Bible, you'll discover there are kings all over the place. There are kings in the book of Genesis. In Exodus, there's the Pharaoh. Throughout the Israelites' trek into the Promised Land, there are the kings of Canaan. There are the kings from Israel, the kings of Judah, the kings of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the kings of Syria, the kings of Babylon, kings of Persia. Going to the New Testament, you have the Herods and the Caesars. So, so much of the Bible is about kings and queens. So, with that much ink, that's a good reason for us to study it. The second reason, and maybe the most important reason of all, and what caused me to think about this series in the first place, is that the kings and queens are like you and me. And I hear somebody say, hey, Mark, wait a minute. I'm not a king. I'm not a queen. I need this week's paycheck. How can I be like a king or a queen? Take this into consideration. The kings and queens in the Bible were people with power and the freedom to make choices and take risks. You and I in America live in something called a democracy. A democracy means the rule of the people. So consequently, you're a ruler. And 
living in a nation with freedom, you have the opportunity to make choices and take risks. And oh, by the way, just in case you think you're not rich, even though we may explore the lives of kings for quite a while from the Bible, you will discover that the people in the Bible who were kings and queens didn't have a whole lot of stuff that you have. The richest kings didn't have the internet. The richest queen never had a smartphone. Solomon, we're going to be talking about him today, the richest king of all time. He'd, he would have given half his kingdom for a 10-year-old Hyundai. Can you imagine what that must have been like? No car. He didn't have air conditioning, didn't have heating in the winter. Solomon never had a hot fudge Sunday. You're richer. And oh, by the way, could I just throw something out that we all know but don't think about all that often? If you have your health today, I'm not talking about perfect health, but if you have enough health to live your life pretty much the way you want to live it, you're one of the wealthiest people in the world. When Robert Wood Johnson, who was the heir to the Johnson & Johnson Medical Company fame, lay dying in January of 1968, he had hundreds of millions of dollars. And one of the last things he said before he died, he said to his nurse, I have hundreds of millions of dollars and I would give it all if somebody could make me well. So today, I, I want to make sure that we feel this, that we understand that the kings and the queens in the Bible are like you and me. We have freedom, we, take choice, we make choices, we take risks, and we are so blessed in America to live really very affluent lives. A third reason. There's a statement that's been picked up through the years. No one's really sure who the originator of the statement was. But the statement goes like this, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Is that true? Not if you believe Jesus. Because Jesus said the bad stuff that we do, it's not because some external force has acted upon us. Jesus is saying it's down there inside and it comes out. Hey, power doesn't corrupt, power reveals. If you, had a, if you won the lottery today and you suddenly had $100 million, would it change you? No. It would reveal what's in you. If you had the upper hand in a relationship and you could do pretty much whatever you want to do in the relationship, it wouldn't change you. It would just reveal what's in you. So when we look at these kings and queens who have the power, it wasn't that being a king or queen changed them. It's just that the power and the affluence reveal what was inside. The fourth thing, fourth reason why we're doing this series, the Bible tells us there are two keys to why God put all the stories in the Bible. The first one's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. The Bible says these things happened as examples for us. They were written down to warn us, okay? The stories are there to warn us. Look at the second one, Romans 15, 4. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So God is saying the reason all these stories in the Bible, number one, to warn us so that we don't make the mistakes of those who did make mistakes. On the other hand, to teach us how that God works so that even in tough times, we would have hope. Number five, when you look at how God evaluates the kings and queens, and some of you have read this in the Bible, you discover that God evaluates kings and queens in one of two ways. The Bible will say they either did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, or they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. God doesn't hand out many C's. It tends to be an A or an F. And it all came down to did they do what was right, or did they do what was evil? Interestingly, I was just Counting this up, about two-thirds of the kings were said to have done that which was evil, and about a third were said to have done that which was right. You will notice as we go through this series that some start off good, and like today's episode, they'll tell off at the end, and then there are those who actually start off bad, but their lives change, and they begin to please God toward the end. Number six, I don't know that there's a series more appropriate for our times. You'll see it real quickly. Once we get into this today, you won't need me to say that. You'll, you'll, you'll figure that out. 
But beyond that, especially those of us who have spheres of influence, groups of friends, or we're parents of children, or we're grandparents, we're going to see there's so many lessons that we can mine out of this that are going to help us. It's so appropriate for our times. And number seven, maybe this is lesser than the others. I think you're going to find it interesting. When you hear these stories, you're going to say, I didn't know that was in the Bible, or can they put that in the Bible? I promise you, this is just going to be an interesting series. So here we go. Today's talk is called High Roller. It's about Solomon. Hey, did you know that there are 71 chapters in your Bible that are either written by Solomon or about Solomon? That means 6% of your Bible has to do with this character. So since we talked about if God puts a lot of ink into something, he wants us to pay attention. If 6% of your Bible is about this guy, don't you figure it's important for us to, to look at his life? A little backstory. Solomon is the son of King David, as in David, David and Goliath. And David is a great king. He wasn't a great dad. Uh, as David had several sons, and it seemed like his heir apparent was always blowing up. So now David's at the end of his kingdom. He's an elderly man, and everybody's wondering who's going to be the king because so many of David's sons have disqualified themselves. Solomon is his youngest son, most likely. And just FYI, um, he is the second son that David had with Bathsheba. You remember David had an affair with his next-door neighbor, Bathsheba, had her husband whacked. The baby that he conceived in that affair died, and then David marries her, and Solomon would be the son that they had next. How many of you have discovered that you can come from really bad circumstances and you can rise above them by the grace of God? And that's what happened with Solomon. So David's at the end of his life and everybody's wondering who's going to be king. And ultimately it is revealed to be God's will that Solomon is king. Now, put yourself in his place. Some of you don't have a hard time doing this. He's 20 years old, about, and, and your dad is a legend. And you grew up at the tail end of his life and all of a sudden, you're king. And not only are you king, you're king of the most powerful nation in the world. And everybody is suddenly looking at you as if to say, what do we do now? Now, that's where we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 3 in the third verse. The Bible says, Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, what do you want? Do you know what you want? You know, if God asked this question of a lot of people, they wouldn't know what to say because they don't know what they want. But God said to Solomon, what do you want? Ask me, and I will give it to you. So Solomon says, well, O Lord, my God, you've made me king instead of my father David, but I'm like a little child. I remember reading this in the King James when I was growing up. Solomon said, I don't know how to go into a room and how to come out of a room. I don't know which fork to use. I don't know how to be king. And so Solomon said, give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. I'm not political, but how many of you would like for our leaders today to ask God, God, teach me the difference between right and wrong? Because Solomon said, who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you've asked for wisdom and have not asked for long life, wealth, or death of your enemies, I'll give you what you asked for. I'll give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one has ever had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. Well, let's slow down here a second. I grew up in church, traditional church, good church. And I used to sit in Sunday school and the teachers would say, Solomon asked God for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. Technically, I guess it's true. But it's a little more specific than that. What God gave Solomon was capacity. 
He said he would give him an understanding heart. A heart there is the combination of your mind and your emotions and will. So God was saying to Solomon, I'm going to give you the capacity for wisdom. It is one thing to have capacity. It's something else to utilize it, isn't it? What we're going to discover in Solomon's life that he had this enormous capacity, but he didn't always use it. I, I don't like the experience of buying a car. It intimidates me. And if I feel like I've left money on the table, it will grind on me for days. But there's something worse than leaving money on the table, like leaving opportunity on the table, like leaving life on the table. And the sad thing is, you and I both know this is true. There are a lot of people in life who have enormous capacity to do great things, but they squander that capacity. So ultimately, I want us to be clear on something. Although God did give Solomon wisdom, most of all what he gave him was the capacity for wisdom. Okay, God has said to Solomon, you're going to have so much, nobody in the world will have as much. I mean, here's the thing. There's no getting around this. Solomon was a whale. He was a high roller. You talk about somebody getting comped by life, that's Solomon. No table limit, no house limit, no floor limit. He could have anything he wants. In fact, here's the thing. Just in gold, now he got a lot of different stuff, but just in gold, and I, I checked this out, and I multiplied this by the price of, closing price of gold on Wednesday Every year, Solomon got $960 million in just gold. $960 million a year. He reigned for 40 years. That's $38 billion just in gold. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible said he was so rich, the king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. So that's his life. Let's put over the side of the road and run a subtitle here. Capacity to be the wisest man who ever lived, the richest man in history, no enemies, no limits, can do anything he wants to do, can buy anything he wants to buy. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that kind of life? I mean, if you're going down Rodeo Drive, you can stop at any shop you can get, you can buy anything you want to buy. You, you pass the showrooms, if you see something shiny in there that you like, you can buy it. You, you see a house you like on the, you know, uh, on the, on the beach, you, you can buy it. Anything you see you want, you can buy. Wisest person in the world, no enemies, no problems. How does that kind of laugh sound? There's a little book in your Bible. It's called Ecclesiastes. I wouldn't build my life on Ecclesiastes. Normally I would tell you you could build your life on the Word of God, but Ecclesiastes is there for a particular reason. It's the journal of this man. And God allowed his journal to be codified and to become part of the Bible. I always notice a lot of times people that don't have much interest in God oftentimes at their funerals, they'll read from the book of Ecclesiastes. Richard Dawkins, the atheist, Ecclesiastes was his favorite book. That should tell you something. It's a screwed up book written by a screwed up man. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to tell us about his life. And he starts by saying there are three characteristics of the lifestyle that he was allowed to live. Look at this. 2 verse 9, Ecclesiastes. I became greater than all who lived in Jerusalem. Solomon's like, I'm number one. I was bigger, faster, richer, meaner. I, anything anybody had, I was bigger. I was the greatest. Number two, anything I wanted, I would take. And number three, I denied myself no pleasure. I was the best, I was the biggest, I was the brightest. I got anything I wanted, and I never told myself no. So, in the words that Dr. Phil used to say, how's that working for you? Verse 11, look at the answer. But as everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Yeah, I know what somebody's thinking right now. It's like, oh, 
I know you religious people, that's sort of your book out of the Bible. It's your way of preaching religious thought that if you have all kinds of stuff in life, it won't make you happy. It's just a fictitious story. Oh, really? You know who Tom Brady is? I mean, Tom Brady, quarterback for the Patriots, got rings on his fingers, handsome guy, married to a model, beautiful life. He was being interviewed years ago. In fact, this was in 2005 after he'd just finished winning. Well, actually, he won his third Super Bowl before that. And he was being interviewed by Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. And here's what Tom Brady said. He said, there are times when I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, that's what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? And Steve Croft, who was taken aback a little bit, said, well, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. One of my favorite songs, I love you too, and Bono, I love the song. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. And here's Solomon. He's got all the bling, all the stuff, all the cash. He has all the women, and yet he's saying, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Well, if you're Solomon, what do you do? If you haven't found what you're looking for, you look, you search. Solomon's like, okay, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 13, I decided to search for understanding. So in effect, now he's just going to like try this, try that, and ultimately he's going to figure out something, because after all, he's got unlimited money, he's got unlimited power, he can take any kind of risk, he can make any kind of choice, he's just going to explore everything to find out where meaning is. Okay, check this out. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 2. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Pleasure means in every situation doing what feels fun or good. He said, let's look for the good things in life. Solomon's like, I know where life is. It's in having fun. But the Bible said, this too is meaningless. Hebrew word there means crazy. So Solomon said, okay, if pleasure doesn't do it, if pleasure doesn't numb the pain, maybe, I mean, pleasure doesn't take the pain away, maybe I need to numb the pain. Ecclesiastes 2.3, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. Psalm's like, the only people I see who are coping are people who are drunk or high. The song was like, I'm going to get drunk. I want to get high. Everybody must get stoned. Uh, just want to see where my baby boomers were today. <laughs> Little Dylan in there. <laughs> Some of you have tried that. You know what you discover when you try to dull the pain? When you sober up, the pain's still there, and then you got the problems that you got into when you were drunk or high. So Solomon's like, well, that didn't work. So he, he like went this one direction, pleasure, drinking, shooting up, taking pills, tried that. That didn't work. I'm going to go the other way and really live a disciplined life. I'm going to turn my TV to HGTV. Look at this. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards. Well, that didn't do it. Verse 7 is really ugly. He said, I bought slaves. And slavery is one of the most awful things, one of the most awful chapters in the history of our nation, and it's still causing pain even today. You know what's so ugly about slavery? Slavery is using someone's life. It is taking a God-given person with gifts and personality and skills 
and taking that person and saying, you exist for my benefit. And I really think that the horror of that sin is one that just can't seem to be removed from a culture. But here's the deal. There are some of us here today who would repudiate, repudiate slavery on its face, but we use people. It's been said there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who love things and use people, and there are people who love people and use things. You're, you're one or the other. Either love people and use things or love things and use people. Well, Solomon's loving things. So consequently, what's he going to do? He's going to use people. And he bought slaves. How ugly. And then verse 8, he said, well, I'm going to try money. I collected great sums of silver and gold. It wasn't like he didn't have enough money already. He's already getting, you know, $960 million a year just in gold. But it's like, well, I'm going to pile it up and make myself feel better. And then verse 8. I hired wonderful singers. In other words, maybe it's entertainment, so I'm going to get all these channels and I'm going to get all these packages. I'm going to entertain myself. That didn't make him happy. So he's going to try one more thing. Saul's like, I know what's wrong in my life. I, I, I understand why I don't have meaning. I've tried the money. I've tried the entertainment. I've tried the houses and stuff. But the reason I'm not happy is I don't get enough sex. That's it. Saul's like, I got I to have more sex. So in Ecclesiastes 2.8, it says he had many beautiful concubines. That doesn't tell the whole story. He married 700 wives and had 300 concubines who were just there for his sexual pleasure. That's 1,000 women in his life. Hey, by the way, I want you to check this out. In, re- in responding to this particular situation, he said, I tested everything. I set out to be wise, but it was beyond me, far beyond me and deep. Oh, so deep does anyone ever find the meaning of life? One discovery, a woman can be a bitter pill to swallow full of scheming and grasping. At least that's my experience. I want to say, are you kidding me? You don't love any of those women. You just want to use them, and now you're whining because they don't love you. Hey, isn't, I told you this is going to be 2018. Isn't that true today? There are people out there, they're just looking for someone to use, but when that person doesn't love them back, they whine and cry and say, oh, I've been deceived. Isn't that true today, ladies? And some of you guys know it's true too. It's like, I just want to use you, but if you don't love me, oh, I've been deceived. I hate having my picture made. If you look like me, you understand. <laughs> I just really do. Mary also say, you know, we have a wonderful photographer who, who does such a wonderful job. And Mary also say, oh, I've, and she always tells me at the last minute. <laughs> but oh, I've scheduled a photographer. And I'm like, okay. I only have one picture I love. You want to see it? Watch this. That's my favorite picture. But it's because it's kind of a metaphor. When I saw that proof for the first time, I loved it because it's kind of a winding road behind us and we're just kind of walking in hand in hand talking to each other. And I think, well, that's a, kind of a metaphor for our life. Marie Alice and I met when we were in high school. I was a junior, I was 16, she was 14. We met in debate. How's, how's that for being prescient? <laughs> Actually, she's still the only person I can't beat in debate. But I think about just live, living life together. 
You know, we went on to college. Mary Alice was the youngest student in history of my college. She started at 16. And I remember one day we were walking to chapel, walking together, and I was probably 19 or so, and we were chatting, and I said, I'll go anywhere God sends me except to Kansas. <laughs> this week on the 6th, we will have been at New Spring for 33 years. <laughs> no, thank you. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? And Morales and I got married. I was called to my first church. We got married on a Saturday. I was called to my first church the previous Saturday. So all the years that we've been married, I've been a pastor and she's been a pastor's wife. And there have been good days and bad days and painful days and exhilarating days. But I love that picture because it kind of describes our life. We've just kind of been hand in hand together, living life together. Now, if you think I've put that picture up to make ourselves examples, that's no, there's nowhere close to the truth there. I just want you to understand, you can't have that kind of relationship and approach things the way Solomon approached things. There are a lot of people today that want, they want to treat life like it's high school ongoing. They're 30, 40, 50 years old, and they're like looking for this gal, looking for this guy. It's just sort of this, I'm, I'm just going to live my life like I'm in the catalog of life shopping for my next sex partner, but then they want this. And it just won't work. You can't go opposite directions on the same road at the same time. I mean, do you feel this in Solomon? It's like, I, my problem is I need more sex. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm marrying 700 wives and and boy, 700 mother-in-laws. Did he think that through? He, I was like, <laughs> I have 700 wives and 300 women that are just like looking for me to call them up. And like, oh no, I've discovered that women are tough and they don't love me. Are you kidding me? Well, what do you figure out? He's going to tell us. He came to two conclusions. All that exploration, he came up with two conclusions. Here's the first one. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 8, I had everything a man could want or everything a woman could want. So, verse 17, I came to hate life. Juxtapose those two statements against each other. I had everything anybody could want, therefore I hated life. Madeline Levine, who's a psychologist, and her clientele, her, her patients tend to be young people, and especially young women. She talked about how that in her practice, she came to notice more and more young women, young girls who came from affluent backgrounds who were attractive, but they were just in such pain. And she talked about giving therapy to a young woman, and she said she had the cutting disguise on, long sleeve t-shirt, extended to the middle of her hand, there was a hole cut in the thumb to hold the sleeve in place. And when Dr. Levine was able to convince her to release the sleeve and pull the sleeve back, Levine says that the girl had taken a razor and had carved the word empty into her arm. That's Solomon. 
He had all the stuff that people could want. I had everything anybody could want. Therefore, I hated life. Have you ever heard the expression, the carrot before the horse? You know what that means? Back in the day before we had mechanized travel, people traveled by carts with horses. How do, you, how do you keep the horse going forward? Well, there was a mean kind of thing that people did in those days. They would have a long pole that extended out in front of the nose of the horse with a string on the end and a carrot on the end of the string, and they would hold the carrot in front of the horse. Well, the horse just knows he's pursuing the carrot. And, of course, he takes steps to get to the carrot, but he never gets there. And that's what Solomon said. He said, look, I, I, it's been the carrot before the horse. I've been trying all these things, but it, it doesn't get me anywhere. Now, what I love now is that Solomon's going to tell us the two reasons why he hates life, even though he had all this stuff. The first reason is in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 15, he said, what's wrong can't be made right. What's lost can't be found. You know what? If you had all the money in the world, you would discover this is still a broken world. And in some ways, that money would mock you because it wouldn't change the things that you can't fix. Money can't fix a lot of things. So he said, that's my first problem. What's wrong can't be made right. And then secondly, in Ecclesiastes, he said, we want to feed our appetites. Meanwhile, our souls go hungry. So that's what he came to the conclusion of. I tried everything. I can't fix what's broken. And even though I've fed my appetites, my soul is hungry. Well, those are two serious conclusions. But here's the thing. As we close out this message, what we're going to discover is that these conclusions came at a high price. And I'll tell you three parts of that high price real quickly. All this time when Solomon was trying these things, he burned up his life with this experiment. You know, when you read Ecclesiastes, it looks like he tried this and he tried that. I mean, he started three weeks trying this and three weeks trying this. It wasn't like that. When you read the life of Solomon, I mean, when Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, it's not a book report on what I did last summer. It's telling you about the 40 years of his life. For 40 years, he tried these different things, and he burned up his life. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, at the end of this journal, he said, Remember your creator while you're young, before the bad times come, before the years come, when you say, I have wasted my life. So in trying the money, trying the sex, trying the building, trying all this stuff, this was something that took up his 40-year life. I mean, all this time he was pursuing this crazy stuff, he burned up his life. Number two, he squandered his kingdom. If you know anything about Jewish history, you'll know that Solomon's reign was called the golden age of Israel. And yet, as you're going to find out next week, it all blew up at the end of his reign because his son went a completely different direction. And ultimately, not only did he lose his family, his son was a quick learner, by the way. He lost his kingdom. Hey, let me talk to parents just a moment. I've talked through Ecclesiastes. Actually, if you want to get the series, it's from like 2005 or 6. It's a series called Arcade. But I remember when I was teaching through Ecclesiastes, I was sharing with the audience here that Solomon makes a weird statement. He said, while he's trying all this crazy stuff, he retained his wisdom. Now, what's he trying to say? Solomon's like, well, I knew it was crazy, but I was able to step back and evaluate it, but I'm going to try this crazy stuff anyway. Let me tell you why that's salient to you and me today. In all my years of pastoring, I've talked to a lot of Christians who said, I know this is wrong. 
I know it's wrong, especially I'm talking about adults, you know. I know it's wrong. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do it anyway. But I know what the Bible says. And, and in effect, the, the juxtaposition of those contradictory statements works like this. I know it's wrong. I'm going to do something crazy. But because I know it's wrong, I can always run back to where I started. That's what Solomon was trying to say. He was saying, I know this is crazy stuff, but I've got my wisdom with me. You know, all his son saw was crazy. All his son saw was crazy stuff is what you do in life. And here's the thing. There are men and women, maybe even here today, who are God followers doing crazy stuff, blowing up your life, but you're saying, well, at least if I do this and it's wrong, I can come back home. All the time your kids and grandkids are watching and they're saying, crazy stuff must be what you do. So the first thing that Solomon did while he was trying all this experimentation is he burned up his life. Number two, he blew up his family and his kingdom. And the third thing is the worst thing of all, and that is that he got on the wrong side of God. See, here's the thing. All you and I have to do to get really lost is to put one foot in front of the other going the wrong direction. We will be tragically amazed at how deep we can sink in life when we just gradually go the wrong direction. Now, let me tell you how it happened to Solomon. You remember a moment ago, I told you he was married to 700 wives. A lot of these came from pagan cultures, and they had pagan gods, pagan deities. Solomon wanted to make them happy. And he was rich. He had plenty of money to spend. So he told his wives, hey, I know you don't worship Jehovah God like we do here, so you worship your God, and and I will just build you a little temple for your God, and you can go worship your God. Well, you know how stuff goes. I mean, after all, Solomon could say, their gods aren't real. They're not real gods. It's will make them feel good. It's their culture. It wasn't long before Solomon's wife said, hey, baby, why don't you go to church with me today? And Solomon's like, well, you know, I'm not really, I don't really believe that stuff, but yeah, I'll go with you. And the next thing you know, Solomon is worshiping idol gods. You want to know how bad it got? He made a temple to a god called Chemosh. Chemosh was this statue, this big statue of this hideous creature, but the belly of the statue was hollowed out. It was a furnace. And in the worship of Chemosh, the people brought their babies and burned them alive as a sacrifice to their God. Solomon, you ready for this? Built a shrine for Chemosh on the top of the Mount of Olives. Man, You start taking a step or two away from God and you will be surprised tragically to find find out where you wind up. So here's what God did. Look at 1 Kings 11 verse 9. God was furious with Solomon for abandoning the God of Israel. He had so clearly commanded him not to fool around with other gods. Solomon faithlessly disobeyed God's orders. God said to Solomon, since this is the way it is with you, you have no intention of keeping faith with me and doing what I've commanded. I'm going to rip the kingdom from you and hand it over to someone else. But out of respect for your dad, I won't do it in your lifetime. It's your son who will have to pay. I'll rip it out of his grasp. Okay. This is the end of the message. Maybe you can help me. I don't understand two things about Solomon. I've been preaching about him since I was 16. I've done series about him here at New Spring, but there's just two things I can't figure out. And you guys are wise. You can help me with this. Uh, Maybe you can just email me and tell me, I figured it out. Mark, I've got the answer for you. 
I don't understand how he can have this enormous capacity for wisdom and just not ask God what his purpose was. Mary Alice hates to shop in stores. She's discovered Amazon. There's Amazon, Amazon Prime, Amazon Sainthood. That's where Mary Alice is. She's Sainthood. Every day, there's going to be a box on my porch, just like every day is Christmas. And Santa comes, he doesn't drop it down the chimney. He just rings the doorbell and leaves it on the front porch. Suppose you got a box from Amazon, and you open it up, and all it is is, is pieces to be assembled. But there's no picture of what it is. You don't know what it is, and there's no schematic. There are no instructions on how to put the pieces together. All you have is a box of pieces. What do you do? You know what a smart person would do? A smart person would contact the manufacturer and say, hey, I got a box of pieces from you. I don't know what they add up to. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know, I don't know what it's for, and I don't know how to put it together. Would you just send me instruction? You're the manufacturer. You should know what these pieces add up to. I don't understand. Solomon got a very elegant box of pieces like you and I have. And some of you ladies know what it's like because the guy in your life says, well, I'll just figure it out. That's why we call him Bubba. <laughs> and that's Solomon. Well, we'll figure it out. And you know what? Here's what's so really bad. Solomon's like, the pieces are what I make it to be. I just don't understand why I didn't ask God what his purpose was. He's our manufacturer. God, who am I? What am I supposed to be? How do I, how do I connect the dots? Does it bother you today like it bothers me that people just can't seem to connect the dots? God, I don't know. You're my maker. I, I, I'm just a, I'm, I'm a box of pieces, but tell me who I am. Tell me what I'm supposed to look like. Tell me what I'm supposed to be. How do I connect the dots? Here's the second thing I can't figure out. I don't understand with all of his wisdom why he didn't recognize what was going on. You and I have a God who loves us. We also have an enemy, Satan, who hates us. You know, we live in a world today where there are those even American Christianity who say, well, I can, I can accept the idea of a God, but the idea of Satan, I don't, I, well, he loves that. He'll just ride that all the way to the bank. You remember in the Illusion series? Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you're Satan and you're watching Solomon, he's getting all this bling, he's getting all this cool stuff, he's getting all these prizes that God is giving them, and you're, you're watching this kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people, they have the opportunity to do extraordinary things. If you're Satan, what are you going to do? It's like, I'm going to blow this guy's life up. And all the time that Satan, all the time that Solomon was pursuing all of these appetites, what he did not realize was that, ready for this, the enemy had moved into his appetites. See, a lot of times we don't connect the dots because we feel like if it's my appetite, how can that be my enemy? Hey, if it's what I want to do sexually, if it's what I want to do, how can the enemy be moved into that? Hey, if it's what I want to do with my money, how can the enemy? But that's what happens sometimes. I was kind of talking with my son, the youngest son, Stephen, yesterday on the phone. We were talking about this message, and Stephen loves history. I love history, but Stephen's in a different place. He's really bright. 
He started telling me a story that came out of the era of the Revolutionary War. It seems that in the, in the conflict, the Continental Army was impoverished, basically. And there was a very wealthy man who had been a sign of the Declaration of Independence and a friend of Washington named Thomas Nelson. He had a magnificent mansion and a beautiful estate. And right before one of the largest battles between the British and the colonial army, uh, Cornwallis, the British general, decided that he would, he would take Thomas Nelson's house to be his center of operations. He would move in himself, all of his generals and his commanding detail, and they would move into Thomas Nelson's house. It's not because it was the most elegant place around. It was because he understood there's no way in the world that Washington would turn his cannons on the house of his friend. And after all, Nelson had, he had generously supplied many of the munitions and much of the ammunition that the colonial army was fighting for. He'd given them gifts and given them friendly loans. And so Cornwallis thought there's no way in the world that Washington will attack Nelson's house. And sure enough, when Nelson visited Washington, the colonial army, he, determined, he saw quickly that the cannons were not turned toward the commander's headquarters. And Nelson asked Washington, why don't you have the guns turned toward my house? That's where the enemy is. And Washington said, well, I don't want to harm your place. And Nelson said, the enemy has moved into my house. Take it down. Some of us today need to take a hard look at our lives because we're pursuing crazy stuff. And we feel like it can't be wrong because it's what I want to do. But what we don't understand and what Solomon didn't get is the enemy has moved into our appetites. And today needs to be a turning point. Would you bow your head with me, please? I want to go back to what I said right before this. I said, I don't understand why Solomon doesn't ask. I mean, you know, when he did ask, God did wonderful things in his life. Hey, did you realize... That God's ultimate gift that he offers every one of us, he offers, if we will ask, eternal life, living forever when you die, being forgiven of your sins, having a personal relationship with God, your creator. That's all in asking. Romans 10 verse 13 says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If I'm talking to anybody, if you're watching in South or North auditoriums, if you're watching online or watching on television, I have the good news for you today. If you want to become God's daughter, if you want to become God's son, all you have to do is simply ask. It's the one thing Solomon forgot to do. If, you, if that's attractive to you right now and you say, Mark, I want to have that peace with God. I want to have that relationship. I want to lead you in a prayer. These aren't magic words but I want to pray these words, and if you want to say them to God, I'll, I'll say these words slowly so you can decide if you want to say them to him. Okay, here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I am broken. But I, be I believe that you love me. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since he lives, I want him to be my savior and my king. Thank you for making me your child, forgiving me, and giving me everlasting life. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, if you just prayed that prayer as we get ready to go, if you go to any info center, they have a gift bag for you. It's got a Bible like I preached from, a book I wrote, some other cool stuff. All you have to do is say, I prayed with Mark, and they'll give it to you. They won't hassle you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.